Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Uh, welcome to episode 16 of Chris's on Infinite Earths here at the Chris and Reggie channel. You can find this program every other Wednesday at chrisandreggie.com, chrisandreggie.podbean.com, and all them places that aggregate sound. Now, this week, we've got a very special book, uh, one that I've wanted to discuss for a little while now. Uh, it's very much a uh, Chris book, uh, which I guess is a uh, another way of saying this is an episode I'm not expecting too terribly many people to uh, download and listen to. Uh, reason being, we're going to be discussing the uh, one and only issue of Laurel and Hardy to come out through DC Comics back in 1972. And uh, this book is important to me because, uh, well, Laurel and Hardy are important to me. Um, they've been part of my life for uh, most of it, and uh, I couldn't imagine my childhood without uh, without them being a part of it. You see, uh, I grew up in New York, as a lot of you know, and uh, on Thanksgiving every year on uh, Channel 11, WPIX, so yeah, I'm the uh, one millionth uh, 80s, <laughs> 80s New York kid uh, waxing nostalgic about Channel 11, um, they used to play March of the Wooden Soldiers, uh, and as far as I know... Uh, I believe whatever Channel 11 is these days, I think they might still actually play uh, March of the Wooden Soldiers uh, every Thanksgiving morning. If uh, anyone's still out there, uh, let me know if they do. Um, now, I met and just became fascinated with uh, Laurel and Hardy then, and uh, and the thing of it was is I didn't realize that they did anything but March of the Wooden Soldiers because for the longest time, that's the only thing of theirs that I had seen. And uh, it wasn't until one year I actually stayed past the credits, you know. Uh, March of the Wooden Soldiers has a strange runtime, you know. It's a, it's not, you know, a made-for-television sort of a thing. And a lot of times they would have to do something with the extra time that's missing, you know, because it's not quite a, a solid two-hour block. So they need to fill it with something, and uh, they started filling it with... A Laurel and Hardy short, which, uh, I tell you what, it blew my mind to see, uh, you know, Stanny D and Ollie Dumb as, you know, to, uh, relatively modern characters. I mean, we're going to the 30s rather than whenever March of the Wooden Soldiers was set, but uh, it was pretty cool to see them in a different light, and it was the first time I had seen them in a different light, so I was just, you know, kind of gobsmacked, and it generally... The episode or the mini, the the short that they would show after March of the Wooden Soldiers was uh, was the live ghost. Um, it's also known as Shanghai. It uh, features uh, Stan and Ollie being uh, well, Shanghai, a uh, a ship captain uh, knocks them out, puts them on the boat, and off they go. Uh, and at some point, you know, somebody gets you know covered with it. It's the the ship is feared to be haunted and rumored to be haunted. And at some point, a drunk guy gets covered with a sheet. They all think it's a ghost, and you know, it's it's a funny <laughs> it's a funny time. But uh, that opened my eyes to realize that uh, that these two actually had a body of work outside of March of the Wooden Soldiers. And uh, of course, this is before internet, you know, so I I didn't know where to even begin searching uh you know i remember asking uh, uh my grandparents and they they knew who they were and they knew what they did but uh you know i, I it wasn't really research at that point it was just like oh that's you know really cool to know that there is more out there for me if i if i want to go looking for it and uh we were still living in the city and uh, we didn't have cable so i mean 
all I had was Thanksgiving morning, and uh, you know we taped it because uh, we 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 had VCRs my entire life, and uh, we weren't shy about using them. So uh, we did tape it. So I would watch March of the Wooden Soldiers any time of year uh, because it was just a very important uh, movie to me, and uh, still is. I still I still do uh, search it out online because I can't find anywhere to stream it. I do. I seek it out every Thanksgiving morning as I'm uh, preparing the turkey, and I will watch through it, and then I'll watch through, you know, whatever the recommendations are after that. So I'll have the whole day watching Laurel and Hardy on on Thanksgiving, and been doing that, you know, going on going on forty years now. So uh, it's a it's a very important uh, a very important uh, a couple of fellows to me. Uh, we moved out to uh, Long Island. Back in 1988, I was uh, eight years old, and uh, that's the first time we had cable. Uh, they didn't have cable in the city, as far as I knew, uh, unless that's just what my parents were telling me as an excuse not to uh, get cable. <laughs> it's certainly a possibility. But uh, out in, uh, we were we were pretty deep in Suff- Suffolk County, out in Oakdale, uh, where you know if you didn't have cable, you really weren't getting much of a picture on your television. So we had to get cable. And uh, I still remember the first night um, we watched uh, we watched Nick at Night the entire night, and I I didn't know what Nick at Night was. I didn't know what Nickelodeon was, but uh, I remember settling in after dinner and uh, watching. The first thing I watched on cable was uh, Mr. Ed. <laughs> it was on at eight o'clock on Nick at Night. I, it's like I still remember that entire lineup. It was like Mr. Ed, Patty Duke. My Three Sons, Donna Reed. And then it was like a uh, mid-70s, uh, or first season Saturday Night Live. And it was SCTV and Laugh-In. I mean, it was a, a heck of a lineup to uh, to watch. And going from having, you know, the three or four channels in the city to just this, like, limitless entertainment at the time that I thought, you know, uh, the, things we, <laughs> the things we take for granted, right? And... Uh, I remember we watched that the first night, uh, and one of the things that really uh, sticks out to me when I think about it is the uh, the commercials that uh, the, you know the commercials on regular broadcast television were different. Uh, they were they were more uh, for what was going to be on the TV and for products, where on cable you'd see commercials for things you can like mail away for, you can call and get. Uh, I remember one that was a. Uh, I think it was like an Isoflex, uh, the whatever comes, whatever came before Bowflex, the exercise equipment, and uh, the commercial started with a, like the Vitruvian Man, you know, the <laughs> Da Vinci's Vitruvian Man, and then it would like sh- morph into a guy doing an exercise, and you know, in the shape of that, and uh, then there was a stain remover called uh, DD7, and uh, that one sticks with me because they made a really big deal about being able to get blood stains out of your clothes. <laughs> and I thought that was very strange. It was uh it would be like uh, dirt stains, mud stains, something stains, even blood stains and uh and they showed a picture of, you know, blood on a shirt. And I thought that was very uh very weird. Uh <laughs> How's this for a tangent, right? Um but uh the thing of it was is now that we had cable, we had channels that would specialize on things. This is back before everything was just different flavors of the same thing like we have now. Uh, we had a channel called AMC, American Movie Classics. Uh, this is back when they showed 
classic movies and not uh, you know zombie TV shows. Or I think that's the channel that plays Walking Dead. It might not be, for all I know. But uh, there was American Movie Classics, and that's where I would finally start catching some Laurel and Hardy shorts. And uh, you know, I still remember every Sunday night pulling the uh, the TV circular out of the uh, the Sunday paper and going through to see what I could find. And uh, you know, the thing of that was. You know, like, this is pre-internet, I didn't have any real research here. So if, uh, if I saw that at 1.30 a.m. the Who's Gal was going to be on, if it didn't say starring Laurel and Hardy, I didn't know it was a Laurel and Hardy movie. You know, so I wouldn't set the VCR for it, I wouldn't stay up to see it, or I wouldn't make sure I was in front of the TV for it, unless it specifically said, you know, starring, you know, Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy. And uh, that made it very difficult to uh, to keep up and to uh, learn and to collect because, like I said, I was not shy about my VCR and I I collected things. I've always, I mean, folks see my comics collection and think I'm sick. If you see my VHS collection that's currently melting in my Arizona garage, you'd probably also think or you it would confirm that I am a very sick individual. But uh, <laughs> I would look. Every single week for Laurel and Hardy stuff, and uh, I wasn't uh, I wasn't terribly successful, you know. And then, like sometimes by pure luck and happenstance, I'd come across something, but it would be halfway over, and or or I wouldn't have a tape in the VCR, and then by the time I'd get one in there and get it to the right spot, I'd already miss five minutes, and uh, just made it very difficult to uh, to really become a uh, a knowledgeable Laurel and Hardy fan. Uh, but uh, I, I remember I was a uh, Newsday new, paperboy, and uh, sometimes I'd catch them on Sunday mornings because uh, if you were ever a paperboy, you know that Sunday mornings you got to get up very, very early to deliver those papers. So I'd be up at four in the morning, uh, be on the bike by a quarter after four with uh, <laughs> 30 pounds of paper on my back. But uh, I remember catching... Uh, Laurel and Hardy episode or a Laurel and Hardy short one time and then I figured okay I know that they're that it's on at this time so I set the VCR to tape the next week and it was something else you know you just you could never tell it wasn't like a uh, it wasn't like a prime time lineup where it would be like okay well Laurel and Hardy is every Saturday at noon you know it wasn't like that um, it wasn't until probably uh, it was a holiday weekend in, uh, I want to say, 1995 or 1996. They announced a uh, Laurel and Hardy marathon, and it was going to go for like four days. It was like starting on a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and then into Tuesday morning, you know. And uh, finding out about this was like, you know, Christmas, my birthday, <laughs> all wrapped up into one. And I went out and I bought a brick of VHS tapes, and uh, and uh, I, I just set in to uh, to tape the entire thing. And it started with uh, birthmarks, which was I don't think it was their first uh, talkie short, but it was it was early enough. I think there was I think like any old port might have come. Oh, there was one that came before it, I believe. Um, I don't have my uh, Randy Scredved book with me at the moment. That's somewhere in the garage. But uh, 
I set in to tape this entire. God, it was uh, it was like a four day thing. Um, and I uh, I remember my TV in my bedroom. My TV and VCR were they were hooked up to a to a hot plug. You know, like uh, one of those plugs that if you flip the switch on the wall, it it depowers it. So I remember just loading my my wall switch up with like masking tape, electrical tape, just keeping the thing in the on position so nobody could accidentally shut it off, or I wouldn't accidentally absent-mindedly shut it off. And <laughs> God, it was funny. But uh, I uh, I set in for this weekend, and I. Uh, I tried cutting a deal with uh, with my mother that I would uh, miss a day of school to uh, ensure that I got all of it, and I think it was a it was a long weekend, and I, I wanted to miss Tuesday because the uh, the movies were playing into Tuesday, and she wouldn't let me stay home, but she did agree to let me go in late so long as I didn't mind walking to school because I would have missed the bus, and that was fine with me. I was totally cool with that, and so I agreed. And I bought something like eight tapes. It was like eight tapes, and they were the uh, they were like the real garbage quality uh, SLP eight hour tapes, where like you <laughs> you're afraid if you breathe on it, it's gonna like turn to dust. But uh, I, I got those because it's what I could afford. Um, my VCR was kinda on its way out at that point as it was, so I wasn't gonna get a top quality recording anyway. But I just wanted to have it, you know. It was just one of those things. I, it was like a to me, it was a once in a lifetime thing that I'd never be able to do again. And so, you know, I set in, and I, uh, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't sleep unless it was like in the middle of a tape. You know, I was setting alarms for every few minutes, for not for every few minutes, for every few hours, to make sure that. You know, something didn't happen, you know, we didn't get a power outage or or I didn't forget to swap out a tape. And uh, like I mentioned with March of the Wooden Soldiers, these aren't like perfectly timed. You know, this isn't like perfect half hour blocks. And also, when you get an eight hour tape, you might not get a full eight hours. You might get seven hours and 50 minutes. And while it's only 10 minutes, it could make the difference between catching something and not catching something. There are other times where you get an 8-hour tape and there's somehow 9 hours on it. You just you just don't know. But uh, the very first tape, I, was, uh, I woke myself up to swap it out and uh, only to hear the tape rewinding. Right in the middle of Laughing Gravy, which is an episode, or which is a uh, short where uh, they take in a dog. Uh, Laurel and Hardy take in a dog named Laughing Gravy. But uh, it started rewinding during that, and uh, and so I missed half of it. I, I remember throwing the tape in, uh, the next tape in, and just being really annoyed that I was going to have it in two parts, and uh, I was going to have one tape end in the middle of an episode, and the next tape start in the middle of that same episode. I just it really bummed me out. But uh, you know, these are the things we do when we're uh, <laughs> obsessive. But uh, I did that and uh, didn't leave the house. Not that that was a big deal to me. Uh, <laughs> I only left to, you know, hit the hit the bathroom, hit the shower, and uh, grab some grab some food, uh, and just always on the alarms because I I only felt safe sleeping in the middle of a tape because, uh, like I said, the VCR was old, um, the tapes were crappy, uh, so 
I knew if there was going to be a problem, they'd it'd either be like in the first few minutes or the last few minutes where something might go hinky. But, uh, but yeah, it was a uh, very, very memorable weekend. And uh, perhaps the most memorable part was uh, waking up on a Tuesday morning. I woke up a Tuesday morning and the TV screen was fuzz. Uh, it was a... Uh, Static on the TV And I knew that there were still like 3 or 4 hours of movies left And I, I remember getting up I remember running into uh, Running down the hall Checking my, my sister's television Static My uh, I go downstairs to the or I, I, We were on a one story Then I was I went into the living room Static on the main TV And uh, the cable went out And, and it picked <laughs> the most rotten time to do so So I missed out On uh Several hours of the uh, marathon due to that And uh, it would be a couple years later That uh, I emailed um, whatever AMC's uh, AOL uh, thing was It was like a contact us thing And I asked if they'd ever do another uh, Laurel and Hardy marathon And uh, they actually wrote me back And they said that they no longer had the uh, they they, They no longer had it They couldn't they didn't have the license or they didn't have the whatever it is. So I thought I was just done. <laughs> you know, I'd never I'd never uh, see or own those uh, those films. Uh, and it's just funny to think that right now uh, we can go to YouTube and find just about anything we want to see, including, you know, all the Laurel and Hardy uh, shorts that have been uploaded and the films and... You know, and you know, DVDs happened uh, a few years later, and uh, and that's when I I remember seeing Laurel and Hardy DVDs, but they were always the same ones. It was always uh, Atoll K, also known as Utopia, and uh, the Flying Deuces, because they were, uh, I guess, they were public domain, I think. But uh, those were the only ones I'd see, <laughs> and they were uh, they were you know the very last films, and they. Uh, they were a little sad. They weren't. They weren't very good. They weren't very funny. The the, the boys didn't look great in them. Uh, it kind of you know everyone knows Ollie's the big one and Stan's the little one. But at this point, like Ollie was sick, so he was thin, and Stan was sick, so he was heavy. It was very. Uh, it wasn't the way you want to remember them. Is is kind of the thing, and uh, and it bummed me out that those were like the only films that were available. Uh, you know, within reach anytime you want But, uh, you know, that's kind of my story with uh, Laurel and Hardy uh, I I know that there's like an amazing DVD set uh, in the UK It's like 21 discs, uh, you know, dozens of hours of uh, shorts and, uh, and movies And I just don't know if I have the right uh, hardware to play it <laughs> And I didn't want to risk Spending the kind of money to, uh, just as, as a risk, just not knowing whether or not they'd play on a, uh, on a PlayStation or if I would have to get a, uh, a Region 2 DVD player or, or even if I can plug that into a wall here. I, I, as you can tell, I'm very worldly, so I, I just don't know if that kind of thing would work or if I just short out the entire house. I just don't know, but, uh. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll jump into a little bit of discussion before we get into the synopsis. Okay, Laurel and Hardy number one from 1972. 
Though, if we're looking at the cover and we squint a bit, this is actually Larry Harmon's Laurel and Hardy number one. Uh, this is uh, not based off the uh, films of Laurel and Hardy. It is actually uh, it's part of the licensing with an animated series that ran uh, in the mid-60s, mid to late-60s. There were uh, like five-minute episodes, uh, animated episodes of uh, Laurel and Hardy uh, antics. And uh, this uh, Larry Harmon, if uh, that name doesn't ring a bell to you, he, uh, you might know him a little bit better as Bozo the Clown. So yes, Bozo had uh, owned the likenesses of uh, Stan and Ollie, and uh, he was also the voice of uh, Stan Laurel in the animated shorts. Um, I'm just going to call this Laurel and Hardy, though. Uh, uh, that's, uh, you know, it is Larry Harmon's, but uh, we're just going to call it Laurel and Hardy. Now, this issue has three stories in it, and uh, none of them have credits, uh, except uh, one of the pencilers does get a credit, but... Uh, I've assembled the credits that we do have uh, from various sites all over the internet, uh, including one that we'll discuss uh, in a little bit more depth as we uh, move along. Now, the stories are Silly Saps at Sea, Private Detectives, and Them Desert Bones. Now, from the cobbled together uh, credits, we have writer-editor John Albano, pencilers Mike Sikowski and Marnow, or Marno, one of those, Inkers, Henry Scarpelli and Bob Oxner. Touch-ups slash additional artwork by Alan Kupperberg. Letters by Gaspar Saladino. And this had a cover price of 20 cents. Now, our first story, and before we get too deep into this, uh, a, lot of the, uh, a lot of the gags here, a lot of the gags are sight gags. So I'll be doing my best to uh, describe what's on the panel here without... Without becoming, you know, a then this panel this happens and this panel this happens. I'm gonna try to keep it as uh, as breezy as possible, but uh, it's kind of gonna be like a slapstick for the blind in a way. Now our first story is silly saps at sea, and this features the boys heading off on a cruise. Now if you're familiar with the uh, the Laurel and Hardy shorts of the uh, 30s. There were there's like a common trope where Ollie is just stressed out, frazzled, and needs to get away from the stresses of everyday life. Uh, usually under doctor's orders, the doctor will say you need to get away, and they'll head to you know them Var Hills or whatever. Now, the stress usually would stem from his buddy Stan, but he would always bring him with him on vacation, which is funny. Now. They're on, a, they're on a cruise ship, they head inside their cabin, and Ollie goes to take a shower, and uh, Stan begins to uh, raid the refrigerator, only it's not actually the refrigerator. You see, their, uh, their room has a porthole, this is a cabin on a ship, of course, and Stan has confused the porthole with the refrigerator, and he reaches out and just grabs whatever the waiter happens to be walking by with. So he gets, you know, a whole roasted chicken, you know? And, uh... Ollie sees this, uh, realizes that it's a porthole, but decides to go along with it anyway. So he reaches his uh, his hand out and uh, goes for a meal of his own. Uh, unfortunately, he uh, he is caught by the waiter, who looks kind of like a like a cartoon shaved ape, <laughs> and uh, the waiter literally chomps down on Ollie's hand and then uh, threatens to report Ollie and Stan to the captain of the ship. Later that day, <laughs> we've got Ollie. Okay, he's downing an entire bottle of sleeping pills, uh, which, uh, you know, we don't recommend. Uh, (laughs) This is in order to help him relax, of course. And Stan decides to be a pal and let his buddy sleep, and figures that he'll kill some time getting rid of his rock collection. 
because for whatever reason, he decided to bring a great big bag of rocks with him. I don't know why. The scene does give me a really, really cool quote, though. Uh, Ollie tells Stan to just get rid of them quietly, and Stan goes, I'll be as quiet as a baby mouse, which uh, that's a line I'd like to steal if I was ever in that kind of a situation. So we're out on the deck, and Stan just starts dropping these ro- the, this, bo- this bag of rocks off the side of the ship. And it lands on a live naval mine that's bobbing just below the sur- surface of the water. There's a terrible explosion which capsizes the cruise ship. Stan's able to swim over and find his buddy and drags him onto a nearby island. Only this island is actually a pretty annoyed-looking whale. And that's it. That's that's the end of the uh, that's the end of the first story. Uh, they're they're not they're not gonna be uh, they're not all gonna be winners. And in fact, I I I venture to say that none of them are going to be winners. Now, our second story, and the second the first story is the only new to DC uh, the new DC story. Even though the cover does claim that they're all new stories, the second two stories are the Marnow or Marno drawn stories that were actually being reprinted from uh, the UK because. Uh, over in uh, UK, uh, Stan and Ollie had a uh, much more, uh, I don't know, celebrated comic series, or a, or at least one that lasted a bit longer than a single issue. Uh, actually, it lasted a while. Now, our second story is Private Detectives, which, uh, believe it or not, features the boys as private detectives. Now, their first day on the job, they find themselves with a high-profile case. There's a wealthy man who reports that his family jewels have been purloined. Uh, well, not not those family jewels. He's actually talking about precious stones and uh, metals, of course. Now, Stan and Ollie load into their... They've got this, like, adorable little motorbike here, and then they head to a seedy part of town to do some private investigating. They pop into a restaurant, and they notice a sign suggesting that they watch their hat and coat. So uh, I guess it's that kind of place. They have a nice bowl of soup, then leave, uh, not realizing that their pants have been stolen. So yes, they're, uh, they get up and they're in their drawers. Uh, their, their pants have been stolen. So they spend their last 20 bucks on some new trousers, and the boys head over to the wealthy fella's house to report in. When asked who done it, Stan blurts out, the butler did it. And it turns out that, uh, well, the, the butler did do it. The hired help throws himself at the mercy of his boss, but gets tossed into the dungeon for the next 50 years instead. So, uh, I'm not sure that's what citizen's arrest means, but, uh, in fairness, I'm also not a lawyer, so I really couldn't say. So, the wealthy fella hands the boys a sack of money, a sack with the word money on it, so we can probably assume that there is, in fact, money in it. The boys return to their office to find that they've been robbed. Looks like they're going to have to uh, spend all of their newfound loot replacing all of their stolen stuff. Ollie asks who done it, but Stan doesn't have an answer because, well, they don't have a butler. Wonk, wonk. <laughs> now, our, like I said, these aren't going to be uh, winners here. These are, these are more for the novelty and for the uh, the love of uh, Laurel and Hardy. <laughs> uh, now, our third and. Um, I guess, thankfully, final story is uh, Them Desert Bones, in which Stan and Ollie have just arrived for their first day at the museum as assistants to a paleontologist who's a short fella, short bald fella with a mustache who 
I, I'm going to say that he's based off of uh, James Finlayson, uh, a uh, prolific foil to Laurel and Hardy in the shorts. Uh, even if that's not the case, I'm going to say that that's, uh, that's who he is uh, based on. So uh, Finn tells the boys that he needs intelligent help. Also, extremely careful help. So, uh, yeah, it's not really hard to see where this is going, is it? Uh, Stan and Ollie immediately fall down a flight of stairs, knocking over a fellow who's holding a box of delicate and priceless and presumably irreplaceable bones. Finn is incensed, and he gives chase, threatening to murder, kill. He's going to kill Stan and Ollie. (laughs) Uh, You know, punishment fits the crime, I guess. Uh, But yeah, he does charge at them, wielding a bone over his head, saying, I will kill you both. Ollie suggests they look for disguises, and so they don themselves in white robes. They then blend in with a group of folks in white robes and are whisked away into the desert. Now it turns out that this group of robed individuals are potential wives for the Sultan. After several failed attempts, the boys are finally able to escape their whip-snapping captor and find themselves collapsing right in front of an oasis. We get a sight gag of Ollie ramming his head into a palm tree in order to prove that, you know, the vision isn't real. Uh... Before we can you know, say with certainly this ain't no mirage, he does actually clonk his head into a tree. After drinking up from the pond, uh, we shift into the nighttime. The boys spy a pair of glowing eyes coming toward them and climb up the palm tree to get away. I, I, I figure, you know, you're in the desert, a vast desert, you just maybe run instead of climb. Um, and, and, you know, if this is really a glowing eyed beast, you know, how, how's that going to help you up in a tree? Uh, of course, it does wind up actually just being a jeep. Stan hops off the tree, which catapults Ollie back into the desert, where upon impact, he crashes through the ground and into an ancient Egyptian burial tomb. The fellow with the jeep calls it the biggest find ever, and he promises to take the boys back into the museum where he will, where he will they will be his guests. That evening, they scrub up, while at the same time, uh, the paleontologist finishes putting together a dinosaur skeleton. Any idea where this is headed? Yeah. Uh, Stan and Ollie enter, with Stan naturally slamming the door behind them. Dinosaur bones go everywhere, and the paleontologist is on the warpath again, and he does, of course, threaten to kill them both as we close out the issue. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> Much as I love Laurel and Hardy, and as important as they've been to to me throughout my life, uh, this wasn't very good. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, in fairness, uh, I, I very seldom get anything out of humor comics. You know, uh, you know that that is to say, you know, comics that are only meant to be funny. You know, I've chuckled at comics before, I've laughed at comics before, but comedy books that are meant to be funny, they're meant to elicit a laugh. They generally miss the mark with me. Uh, this does kind of fall flat, you know? You know, I think I compare it to, like, horror comics, which I never find scary, (laughs) you know? So it's like, whatever angle we're going at, maybe I'm just too old, maybe I'm just too cynical, I I don't know. Uh, The three short features we do get in this issue could have easily been two reelers back in the 30s, so I will give them that much. Some of those did end a little flat, too. Uh, I really dug the art, um, and as I mentioned, only the lead-off story was new. You know, the cover does state all new stories, but the second and third stories were actually reprinted from the UK comics. So, maybe new to DC would have been more like it? I I don't know. Uh, The art styles are very different. Uh, Both of them work for me. I like them both. 
Uh, I really don't know which one I'd say I like better. They're both real. They're both styles are really good. Uh, they do get the voices of the characters down pretty well, uh, and they even gave us a few lines that I'd like to work into my everyday vernacular, just like that quiet as a baby mouse one. <laughs> I, I don't know if I'll ever be able to use that, but I'll I'll, I'll do my best and I'll, I'll keep you all informed. Um, now this is one of the one of the bugbears a lot of uh, fans of Laurel and Hardy might have with this. Uh, Ollie keeps saying. Here's another fine mess you got me into. That's not the line. It's it's here's another nice mess you've gotten me into. There is a there is a short film called Another Fine Mess, but the quote is actually here's another nice mess you've gotten me into. And uh I, I think that's one of the if you're talking about Laurel and Hardy, that's like the the one quote that everybody gets wrong. Now, I suppose uh more interesting than anything inside this book is is the fact that this was only a single issue. You know, uh, I've talked about things like, you know, first issue special, and there's that uh, Sherlock Holmes, oh, you know, one and done from the 70s. So, like, uh, 70s DC was a little weird, you know? <laughs> it's uh, it's uh, very strange. Now, and it's kind of weird that they wouldn't even... Try a second issue for some of these uh, for some of these stories, some of these licenses, some of these characters. There is a book, however, called "The Artful Antics of Laurel and Hardy." Uh, they suggest that there might have been copyright issues. Uh, not sure if those were conflicts with uh, the Harmon Group, uh, maybe Hanna Barbera, because they were the uh, they were the ones who had the cartoon as well. Oh, maybe it was the UK publishers. I, I don't know, but uh, DC did. They actually did solicit. Uh, a couple of uh, follow-ups to this. Before we get to those, though, I want to talk a little bit, very briefly, about The Artful Antics of Laurel and Hardy. It's a uh, really, really good book by Anthony and Joanne Mitchell-Waite. Uh, it's, uh, I'll, I'll leave a link to where you can get it on the site, uh, or on the show notes here, but uh, it's a book I'd like to d- dig deeper into uh, to maybe discuss this at uh, greater length, maybe as a weird comics history or an aside like that, because... This is a, a lot more interesting and a lot a lot deeper uh, of a subject than I ever imagined it being. I thought this was just a one-and-done sort of a thing and really didn't have any relation to anything uh, across the pond anywhere, or just in general. So I'll leave a link to where you can pick that book up if you are interested. But uh, as I mentioned, DC did solicit a couple of things for Laurel and Hardy as a follow-up here. There was a, a DC Digest. 160 pages, 50 cents. Um, they actually had ads for it. And there was also a solicit, or not, I don't know if we would consider it a solicit, maybe just a coming attraction for uh, Laurel and Hardy. Uh, uh, what's his face? Is Larry Hawkins, Laurel and Hardy, number two. And on the cover is Stan and Ollie. And uh, Stan is getting Ollie riled up to fight Superman. So, uh... It's a really, really cool uh, image. Uh, I'll probably use that image as our uh, as our cover art for this uh, for this episode because it's it's really cool uh, having Superman start to start to take off his clothes, uh, start to take off his Clark Kent outfit to uh, to face off with uh, Oliver Hardy. It's uh, very cool, and I'll, and I'll put some of these images on the uh, in the show notes and on the uh, at chrisandreggie.com dot com to uh, so you can all see it. I'd really love to see what. Uh, issue two would have been if if uh, Superman would have appeared kind of like when he met Jerry Lewis or if this was just a gag for the cover you know just a way to get people to buy it it's there's that uh, old saying that 
you know, if you're at Marvel, Spider-Man will do it, and DC Superman will do it. You'll you'll get anointed within your first handful of issues. You know, you'll get you'll you'll get the okay from the the main hero of the universe to uh, to kind of get people to buy your book, I guess. And uh, that, that I don't know if maybe this was an attempt at that to uh, maybe get people to pick up a book they normally wouldn't in hopes that Superman would make an appearance alongside uh, Stan and Ollie. Now, for the issue itself, I guess it was a decent attempt. Attempt. I mean, we're talking about a comedy team from the early 20th century. Might not really translate the comics or American comics. I don't know. Um, this is a book that I, uh, you know, I, I, I hang out in the dollar and quarter and 50 cent bins. This one I actually spent some folding money for. I, I think I spent like five bucks for it. And... Uh, and it, I've only seen it in the wild the one time I bought it, so I, I I don't I don't know how easy this is to track down. I don't know that I'd recommend you try tracking it down unless you are you know a son or daughter of the desert. You'll you'll probably want it in your collection at that point, but uh, otherwise I, you could probably uh, you could just check out the blog post on it and get everything you might want uh, to see out of it. Um, it hasn't been. Uh, made available digitally it's not collected um but uh that's that's really about all we got to say about this uh this weird little issue of uh larry Hallman's laurel and hardy and uh we'll uh cut to the horns uh which are also from laurel and hardy if you've picked up on that uh, the horns that we use to uh break up the segments are are part of the call of the cuckoos or call, whatever dance of the cuckoos that uh, stan and ollie used as their theme uh, and after that, we will jump into this week's hot take. Alrighty, now for the hot take, we're going to dip back into the Action Comics Weekly number 601 well. Uh, we're going to look at the letters page from Action Comics Weekly number 612, where they're still talking about 601. Uh, difference here is that they're actually talking about the, you know, the for sale issue and not the photostat uh, preview copies that DC was sending out ahead of time. So these are going to be folks who actually paid the uh, six quarters, the, the buck fifty for this anthology series, and we're going to get their thoughts, and we're also going to get the results of the first ever Action Comics Weekly poll, because they're going to finally, after 12 weeks, reveal who won the poll. Our first letter comes from a Bob Kowalski in Detroit. And he says, Dear Mike, say, maybe all comics should be made this way. Weekly at $1.50 for six series, which would probably be a lot cheaper than shelling out $0.75 cents for a, to a dollar for a book with only one hero. If that story's a stinker, you're out of luck. I like these odds better. Think about it. The comic format of the future may be a return to your roots. End of sermon, end of letter. See you next week. Well, Bob, I think that's a terrible idea. <laughs> I don't think that would have been a, I don't think that would have been wise at all, especially uh, considering the uneven quality of the uh, stories that we're getting here. Um, especially that two-page Superman uh, strip, uh, the, uh, the the Sunday strip that the, that we're getting here. It's not great. Um, it uh, after twelve weeks, it hasn't been great even once. So. Uh, yeah, I think uh, I think we keep you know maybe an anthology out there, but the rest of the line should probably be the way that uh, the way that it is. Uh, our next letter comes from Richard in Boca Raton. He says, "I like Action Six Hundred One. The concept of a weekly comic was one that I was initially unsure of, but now after one issue of Action Comics Weekly, I'm hooked." <laughs> 
In fact, as happy as I was to get an advanced look at the first ish, I'm bummed out that I have to wait so long to see the next one. All in all, I think you got a winner here, Kimosabi. So, uh, Richard uh, did actually get the uh, preview copy, I suppose, and was unhappy that he'd have to wait for for the, I guess, 602 to hit the uh, hit the newsstands or hit the hit the direct market stands. Um, well, Richard liked it. Not a whole lot to say uh, about that letter. Next one by Lewis in La Mirada, California. He says, Dear Actioneers, what did I tell you? I knew that once everything was put together that this would be a great book, and, well, it is. The final product turned out as great as I expected. I particularly like the new brand of paper that really lets everything stand out clearly. That's odd. I didn't really notice a, uh, a difference in the paper. Um... Yeah, this isn't a uh, this isn't the Baxter book. Uh, that's for sure. Uh, maybe it is a little bit uh, different grade, but I I couldn't tell. Can't tell it at sight and can't tell at touch. Uh, Lewis continues. Let me just say that with the new format, the new art talent, and the new scheduling, that this book offers that I'm definitely going to be sticking with Action Comics Weekly for a long time. Keep up the good work, guys. You always do. So another another person who's very very pleased. With the new format. Next letter is from Jay in in uh, Kansas, and he says, "Dear Mr. Gold and other editors, overall I enjoyed this comic enormously. It felt good to read a comic of this nature that didn't feature a principal character for 90% of the book, and then have the last few pages have another story. Hopefully, this will continue." Now, what he's referring to is uh, backups, backup stories featuring a different hero, a different team, something like that. But uh. If you're familiar with any of my writings or recordings, uh, you know that I'm not a big fan of the backups. I always think that they they take away from cliffhangers. They uh, they're usually of lesser quality. Um, there are a few that stand out that I that I really dig, but uh, for the most part, I'd just rather the uh, the feature story maybe get an extra page or two rather than an entire eight for a story that's. Not really going anywhere and uh, really isn't the reason I would have bought the book in the first place. Jay continues, I was also happy to see Wild Dog return as I was afraid that I had seen the last of him in his miniseries. Besides being an avid comic book collector, I also have a comic shop here in in Atchison, Kansas. Uh, The only comic that outsold this one was Green Arrow number 6. I've been reading and collecting comics for more than 34 years and you continue to be my favorite publisher. Hang in there. Marvel has always been number two. They just won't admit it. So, uh, well, yeah. There's a uh, there's Jay. We have a uh, we're having a lot of very very positive letters here. Which uh, I don't know. Maybe uh, maybe Brian in uh, Pennsylvania will uh, will tip the scales back to uh, to even here. Now this is a long one, so hopefully I can get through it without having to stop to uh, unplug my allergy ridden nose here. Uh, it starts, dear Mike. I'm taking you up on your write-us-a-letter-or-a-postcard offer that appeared in Action Comics Weekly number 601. I haven't had too much time for writing comments to comics lately, but since you asked so nicely, there has been a lot of discussion in the Comics Buyer's Guide letter column, among other places, of the merits and drawbacks of, a new, week- of new weekly comic books, specifically Action Comics Weekly. Complaints have been made about how the monthly cost to the consumer the reduction of Superman strip to two pages, and the possibility of inventory material being used to help out with deadlines. 
Personally, I wasn't about to prejudge a book I hadn't yet seen, except for a sneak peek at, sneak peek at Dave Gibbons' handsome cover, uh, but neither was I completely without doubt. I guess he doesn't realize that this is uh, the hot take section. You're allowed to do that kind of thing here. Uh, he continues, Well, among my weekly stack of comics today was the first issue of Action Comics Weekly, and I enjoyed it very much. Now, I'm only 17, a college-bound high school senior who religiously comes home from play rehearsal on Fridays to read his latest comics fix with a Dr. Pepper by his side. But I'm old enough to get nostalgic. To some people, Action Comics Weekly might actually bring to mind the original Action Comics, Sensation Comics, and the like from the 40s that were the beautiful birth of, a, of superhero mystery and adventure comics. I wasn't around for that, and they're a little too expensive for me to sample right now. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, he continues, To others, Action Comics Weekly might recall the super spectaculars and 80-page giants from the 1960s and 70s. Even though I wasn't around for most of that... Those big, thick books were the centerpiece of my collecting habit as a younger reader. All of those three-for-a-dollar bins, don't you know? Getting into my era, Action Comics Weekly resembles the dollar comics World's Finest and Adventure Comics that showcase different heroes before the DC implosion. The stories in Action Comics Weekly evoke images from all eras, of course from the 1940s to the 1980s, and were good reads or mediocre ones to me for a number of different reasons. Overall, Action Comics Weekly number 601 was a very pleasant surprise, and I'm glad the $1.50 price tag didn't scare me off. There's a lot of material, most of it good or at least promising, for the money. I like the ideas for the different strips to be featured on the cover each week, rendered by that impressive list of artists. As I said before, Dave Gibbons' poster-type design was nice, and George Perez slobber, 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 okay, uh, harkening back to the dollar comics and super spectaculars, though, I'd kind of like to see the contents page that showcases the stories inside. Kind of like a matinee at the Bijou, you know? To make it feel like a weekly reading event. Think about it, please. In other closing words, I'm glad that the rotating format will give us variety. Even if all six strips were excellent, they'd need shaking up every couple of months. And I'm looking forward to The Black Canary and Nightwing, as well as The Phantom Stranger and whatever shows up in Showcase. Now, Showcase, uh, there, uh, there are some stories in Action Comics Weekly that are uh, labeled Showcase Presents. Uh, the one we're reading right now is uh, the Catwoman one. It's a uh, short four-part uh, feature uh, that... That is prefaced as a uh, that is labeled as a showcase presents. Uh, there's also going to be a Shazam one coming up pretty soon um, with the showcase banner on it. Now, uh, actually, uh, the editor uh, Mr. Gold here says our first two showcase features will be Catwoman and Shazam. So yeah, there's a uh, there's that. Next is a very short letter from Kenneth in California. He says, if I pick up a comic named Action, that's what I expect. I see great promise and great ideas in this title. Thumbs up. I'll buy it every week. So uh, it's an overly positive uh, vibe in this letters page, ain't it? Uh, now our next one is uh, Douglas in Oregon. And this is going to be one that goes to the next page. So you're going to hear me flip the page here. He says, woo. After reading the premiere issue of Action Comics Weekly, I must say I am impressed. I really like what you're doing here, and I think DC will be able to pull this one off. A weekly anthology title in this format should go over well, and looking at DC's track record over the past couple of years, it looks as if it will. This is a great comic for someone who, page flip, 
can't afford to buy most of your titles because it gives an exemplary sampling of some of DC's best, and all of comicdoms for that matter, talents. Here's to a long life and a well-deserved success of Action Comics Weekly. So yeah, we're very, very positive this week, ain't we? Not many doubts here. Uh, I guess any doubts anybody did have were, uh, were assuaged here. So our next letter, it's another Doug, and he is uh, from California. And he has got some insane ideas. Uh, He starts his letter with, Dear Action Men, I bet you're getting a lot of letters like mine this week. I love Action Weekly. In fact, I love it so much that I'd love to see DC publish four or five weekly comics with more or less the same format. The best thing about these weekly comics is you can give regular features to characters who can't hold their weight in a solo title, but who can collectively carry a weekly anthology title. Here's Doug's dream DC Weekly lineup. Action Weekly, keep as is. Detective Weekly, Batman, of course. Johnny Thunder, this is the uh, the woman Johnny Thunder that uh, I want to say Roy Thomas uh, did a mini on during the 80s. Slam Bradley, Elongated Man, Roy Raymond, Angel and the Ape, Crimson Avenger in the 40s, and Black Lightning. So there's Detective Weekly. Next, Adventure Weekly, Flash. Jonah Hex, the Wild West version, not high-tech version. Power Girl, Aquaman, Shazam, Challenges of the Unknown, Liberty Bell in the 40s, and Adam Strange. So they're, uh, I like that they're putting these, uh, these you know, in-the-past characters in there, kind of like Action did with uh, Blackhawk, you know, in the, uh, in the war era. Next, Sensation Weekly, starring Wonder Woman, Amethyst, The New Gods, Hawkman, Dr. Fate, The Creeper, The Demon, and The Vigilante. This is the Greg Sanders version and not the recent uh, Marv Wolfman version. Then Justice League International Weekly. Basically revived the original format of All-Star Comics with interrelated team segments and solo segments. The team segments would be by Giffen, DiMatteis, and McGuire. Each Justice League International member would have its own creative team for a solo segment, for example, Ivanier and Rude on Mr. Miracle segments. Please, please, please give it some thought. As for your vote, I can't decide. I love them all. Wow. Even Superman? Come on, buddy. Uh, <laughs> now, uh, Mr. Gold replies with, Well, we passed your idea along to production manager Bob Rosakis, and he went out, bought a shotgun, and climbed to the roof of the office building. We're trying to bribe him back down with something called... Hero Hotline. Five weeklies? Sheesh. And I agree. <laughs> it might have been neat to have, like, one more weekly, but, uh, a weekly anthology, I mean. But, uh, that's, uh, that's a lot of stuff in there. I mean, that you don't, you don't almost have to cancel the entire <laughs> rest of the line here. So, uh, this Doug, uh, kind of agrees with uh, our first, uh, letter hack here who wanted more like this. Now, our next letter comes from uh, to us from uh, Vincent in uh, Massachusetts. He says, Dear Mr. Gold, Action Comics Weekly reminds me of what turned me on to comics in the first place. As a kid in the late 60s, I could always count on the backup stories in DC's 80-page annuals to entertain me even if the feature stories failed to. On many occasions, I recall reading some excellent feature stories as well as some finely crafted and interesting backups. Not just in your annuals, but in many of your titles, from adventure comics to world's finest. It was like enjoying a delicious dessert after an excellent meal. Your first issue of Action Comics Weekly, number 601, was a feast of fine entertainment. Even Superman? Come on. 
Now our uh, final letter is from a Harry in Kentucky. He says, Dear Editors, Overall, I like the new format of action quite a bit. I think it's good to have a major title with multiple stories. First, because it gives the reader more variety, and second, because it gives DC the opportunity to use characters such as Dead Man and Black Canary that might otherwise languish in comics limbo. I wish there were more I wish there was more of Superman, but Action's new weekly status and the new Superman title should help compensate for that. To close, let me say that I intend to follow Action closely, regularly, and with interest as I have for the past two years after a lapse of about ten years. I look forward to continued quality and the use of interesting minor characters. And finally, good luck and keep up the good work. So yes, a very, very positive letters page, which uh, may be a little suspect. I mean, our photostat pals uh, from a few uh, weeks ago, they they did express doubt and they did call out stories they didn't really like. Uh Secret Six got a, you know, got a lashing. Uh, Wild Dog got a little bit of one, uh, and the two-page Superman story also was uh, got a got a little bit of a, a little bit of ribbing there. And uh, this time out, everybody's aces on everything, which, uh, like I said, a little suspect. I don't know. <laughs> now the first great Action Comics Weekly poll for Action Comics Weekly number six hundred and one. We'll do them in reverse order here. The sixth best story was Secret Six. So fitting, you know, you have Six Six. Now, the fifth best story was Dead Man. The fourth best story was Superman. And of course, these are all votes from the readers of the day. Uh, third place, Wild Dog. Second place, Black Hawk. And first place, Green Lantern. Um, my numbers, uh, personally, probably wouldn't be too terribly different than that. Uh, I think my, my top three are probably... Green Lantern, Black Hawk, and Wild Dog for the first issue. Uh, I'm not sure I'd give Superman fourth billing. Uh, he'd probably be uh, all the way at the bottom there. I'd probably, I'd probably swap Superman for Secret Six. So my top six would have been Green Lantern, Black Hawk, Wild Dog, Secret Six, Dead Man, and Superman. Uh, on the site, we run a poll, and uh, uh, the first week uh, we had a little funny haha played on us. Uh, <laughs> somebody voted. Ten times within a one minute for Dead Man. So Dead Man won our poll. Uh, <laughs> I learned uh, my lesson there and put a little bit more controls on the uh, on the poll feature. So uh, so maybe it's just one vote or maybe one vote per day or whatever it is. But uh, yeah, after Dead Man got uh, ten votes in uh, less than a minute, I figured something was up and needed to make some changes. Uh, other than uh, Dead Man, uh, Green Lantern came in second. So I'm guessing that Green Lantern was our top vote-getter uh, outside of the funny haha, And uh, so we do match up uh, with uh, Action Comics Weekly's 1988 poll in that way, at least. And, uh, well, that'll do it for the hot take, and that'll do it for this episode. Uh, if you want to get a hold of us, you can do so at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Find us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Reggie, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Cosmic T-Mill, Reggie's at Reggie Reggie, I'm at Ace Comics. Uh, you can check out the show site, chrisandreggie.com. Find our archives, our images, everything you want to see there. Uh, you can check out the site that this very show is named after at chrisisoninfiniteearth.com. And while you're there, if there's an issue that you'd like to hear me discuss on the show, let me know. Reach out, and I will uh, definitely throw that on the list. Uh, if while you're there you see an issue that you'd like to come on and discuss, let me know, and we'll see what we can figure out. Uh, so that'll do it. I had a good time visiting with you. I hope uh, you all dug it too. 
So long for now. See ya.